of African descent and people of color have actually normalized a lot of everyday racism. The reparation movement, which is escalating in my view, is uncovering the facts that people tried to hide. This is the threat and this is why there is backlash. The idea that we can actually move outside of that kind of structural inequity without confronting the truths and the legacies is beyond a fantasy. Hello and welcome to The Lid Is On. I'm Connor Lennon. For this week's episode, I had a fascinating conversation with two eminent human rights activists on the subject of racism against black people. Dominique Day, the chairperson of the UN Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent, and Vereen Shepherd, chairperson of the UN Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. We were speaking ahead of the International Day for People of African Descent, which has been marked since last year on the 31st of August. Ms. Day is a human rights lawyer who leads Daylights, an access to justice platform. She focuses on racial justice in an international context, and as a UN expert, she investigates and reports on the situation of people of African descent globally. Professor Shepard is a social historian and the current director of the Centre for Reparation Research at the University of the West Indies. The whole issue of reparations was a central part of our discussion, but Dominique Day began by explaining just how insidious racism can be in our everyday lives. People of African descent and people of color have actually normalized a lot of everyday racism. The idea that I can't always get a taxi in New York City, the um, uh, the lengths my parents went to make sure that I was super educated to be able to be to counter the ways I might be misinterpreted or mischaracterized by a world that sees my skin and comes to a different uh, interpretation than who I actually am. From teachers, judges, police, regular society, people who are your friends, right? Like the idea that casual racism is so normalized in our society means that for us to survive it, we actually need to be very thoughtful about the ways we engage. And I think a lot of the benefit is for those of us who work on racism, we can pick and choose in our personal lives, but we have another opportunity to do advocacy and awareness raising professionally, right? So there's plenty of racisms I will talk about on a country visit that I may have even experienced in that same country, but may not have confronted as directly because my sanity, my peace of mind, my equilibrium matters. And so on some level, and the reason I brought reparations into this is the way we actually conceptualize the solution needs to start with how we conceptualize the problem. But these everyday casual racism that has been normalized from the trade and trafficking in enslaved Africans has actually been so interwoven into our society, we not only fail to see it, there's a really active culture of denial that operates transnationally. My perception was that initially there was blanket rejection of the idea that countries should engage in reparations. Has the dial changed a bit on that? Are you seeing some acceptance that there could be some form of reparations? like any other topic, like talking about it helps. Uplifting examples helps. Having people like Vereen as the head of CERT helps. Changing these conversations and informing them with the lived experience, the expertise, and the commitments to look at racism and the impacts of racism as a professional 
um, integrity-driven, research-driven practice has changed the reparations conversation. So there's been advocacy on the ground, but there's also been scholarship and um, new articulations and new arguments brought forward by people operating in a number of professional spaces. So the discourse is evolving. Well, let's talk to Vereen rather than about Vereen. Hi, Vereen, and thank you so much for staying late. Uh, Vereen is in Geneva right now doing back-to-back meetings as chairperson of the UN Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. And uh, you're a specialist in African and African-American history. And the transatlantic slave trade is referenced in the Secretary General's remarks on this International Day on the website. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised, and this is a question for both of you, but I'll start with you, Verena. Are you surprised the transatlantic slave trade is still such a live issue, particularly in the United States? Let me just say that I am happy that it is. I'm happy that it is. And these international days help to focus attention. I gave a lecture in London. um, I'm surprised it's just, just last night. It feels like days ago. But the fact that the mayor of London has taken it so seriously that there is an annual lecture. This was the fifth lecture that I was giving. And... It was very well attended. It was in City Hall, giving it prominence. And it showcased the role of Haiti in the liberation struggle, not just for the hemisphere, but globally. And that really, really said to me, good, let's keep it in the forefront. At the same time, I have to say that it, Dominic, you spoke earlier about you, you need your peace of mind. Therefore, when you confront in your personal life um, racial discrimination, racism, even though you're a human rights defender, you sort of take it in your stride. But I have to say that when the first thing that confronted me as I landed in and came through immigration was to be fingerprinted, you know, as if I'm a criminal. I, I really was shattered. I have to tell you, I felt like turning back, you know? But then I said to myself, there are people who need to hear what I have to say tonight. And so oppressors are not going to, to stop me from doing what I have to do in honor of Bookman Dutty to Saint Leuvature, you know, Henri Christophe, Dessalines. So I kept that firmly in my mind, Dominique, and I said, well, let me just go and give this lecture and then get out of these people's country, you know. But it was it 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 was sobering because it said to me, no black person is exempt from racism and from racial profiling. And I think we have to be realistic about that. So when we when we continue to be human rights defenders, we have to understand that part of that is going to feel bad when you also are profiled. And and in America, of course, Dominique, this is a very this is a very alive, ongoing issue. We've seen the another backlash to against critical race theory. Can you tell us a bit more about that and your take on that? Well, I think it's I think it's a lot of what Marina is saying. There's almost a mobilization that um, 
these stereotypes that we know are not true, that blackness equals criminality, blackness equals danger, blackness equals threat is much more about a threat to white supremacy, a threat to the privilege and power that people have been able to accrue by commodifying their whiteness as value, right? By, by um, and we even see this, right, in international development work. If you spend a little time in the global South, how many people with very little to say, but a very posh, accent and very light skin are able to mobilize massive salaries, massive followings um, to the detriment of the people who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of this funding, right? There's a reason the Global South looks the way it does. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when we talk about critical race theory, it says, let's actually look at what's created the world we're living in today. Let's take a critical view of history. It actually shouldn't be a threat, right? The idea is that we're trying to offer a rigorous and honest look at the world as it exists today. And when you talk about things like the trade and trafficking and enslaved Africans, right, we're talking about a moment in history, a moment in global history where transnational relationships are being developed, where the market economy is being birthed, where the credit economy is being birthed and speculations and futures and all of these fancy economic terms we use today are being developed using black bodies as collateral, black bodies as assets, black bodies as subjects of trade, both in the financial markets and in the agricultural and but it's always been like that, Dominique. The very, the very ration, economic rationale for the transatlantic trafficking in enslaved Africans and plantation slavery was exactly that, using yeah. black bodies um, as assets. Yeah, and absolutely. Even, yeah, and even emancipation, paying reparation and compensation to enslavers at the expense and using a racist ideology to do the calculation because it is racist to say that black bodies, black people are not people, but they are property. And to base your value of them as a way of calculating what you should get at emancipation. This is not something that's necessarily widely known. And so when you talk about critical race theory, when you talk about really mobilizing awareness of systemic racism, all of the ways that racial inequity and inequality play out in our own world today stem from that moment in time and that Mm -hmm. comprehensive mobilization of Mm anti-blackness for profit, for power, for privilege. And the idea that we can actually move beyond that, move outside of that kind of structural inequity without confronting the truths and the legacies is, uh, you know, is beyond a fantasy. Is it correct to say that the current global economy is built on the oppression of black people? That is fair to say. Look at the flight paths. If you ever travel in Africa, you'll be traveling on British airways if you're going to former British colonies. You'll be traveling on Air France if you're going to former French colonies, right? Like ultimately, the legacies of these relationships, right? Who owns the diamonds in South Africa? The legacies of colonial relationships continue to govern not only global wealth, but geopolitical power. And I'm not suggesting that racial justice work will upset that, but perhaps the awareness of that can motivate activities to actually right what's been wrong, which is racial atrocity that became normalized as a part of our lives. But right? isn't, that why, isn't that why critical race theory is seen as such a threat? That if you if you teach about this stuff and if you teach about it in that way, it threatens those who want to bury the truth about history, you know? 
But the reparation movement, which is escalating in my view, is uncovering the, the facts that, that people tried to hide, you know? And I think this is a threat. This is the threat. And this is why there is backlash. Um, backlash because of the strengthening of the reparation movement. And the, there's, I think those who feel threatened are seeing the real possibility that this is going somewhere. And this is the threat. So don't teach it, you know? Uh, it's better to grow up a generation of people who don't know about this stuff. Then we don't have to feel guilty um, about the past. Think about that. It's, it's, it's possible. And yet, you know, it's not the first time. From, uh, from time to time, you have these attitudes surfacing from when Mills wrote the racial contract. You know, it, it's, it's, these conversations come up from, from time to time. But as a the historian said, I mean, from the 1950s, speaking about the Caribbean region, in a region such as ours, we are shame about the past, too often fills the place that should be held by knowledge. Knowledge of the past must be used as liberation, as a means of liberation from the past. So we have to hold to that and, and do what we need to do to break the bonds of shame that some people feel about the past and to use it as liberation. I think the other piece of this, this idea that a great replacement theory means a lot of white folks themselves see their value and their power and their privilege in their whiteness rather than in their intellectual or personal or cultural contribution. This liberation grounded in knowledge has a potential to be liberatory across racial lines. I'm of Irish background, so I'm almost transparent white, if you can see there, my armor. <laughs> Couldn't be whiter. You mentioned that people feel threatened by this, and I've seen lots of comments of people saying, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm not a racist. I, I was not involved in the slave trade. What would you say to people like that? And what role should people, like me, I guess, um, what role should they play in this, mm -hmm. um, in this acceptance of history and moving forward? You know, I think that... If we engage truly and honestly in the repertory justice conversation, and if we all sign on to it, and those who live in Europe, those who live in the in the belly of the spaces that oppress other other people, if everybody got on board, I think it'll be liberating for, on all sides. You know, I don't think reparation, repertory justice, is only as something that will satisfy the descendants of the of the the victims and and those who are continuing um, to suffer the legacies it can be liberating for everybody but so much education is still is still needed and i wonder when they when when students are not studying history if there's a project in that because if you live in a privileged society if you live in a, in a form of colonial power and you see the social infrastructure and compare the social infrastructure to the social infrastructure in the South, and when you connect the dots, you realize that you are living, you are benefiting from the legacies of the suffering of my ancestors. 
that's just how it is. So um, I don't think people in, say, Britain or France uh, who are white should feel as if this is not my fault. I had nothing to do with it. In the same way that the state has a responsibility because the state continues and assumes the, the, the debt of, of previous states. You can't say it has nothing to do with me, but yet you benefit from the good education system, the good health system, you know, the good roads and all of that. You have to realize that the, the, the information about the compensation is so revealing. Eric Williams' Capitalism and Slavery is so revealing that it is undeniable. Some benefited and are living because of the inheritance and other people who got nothing at the time of emancipation and or independence continue to try to make do with little. And one of the things I stressed in my lecture last night was that in terms of Britain, and this came out in Hilary Beckles' new book, How Britain Underdeveloped the Caribbean. Since 1939, Britain knew it, it was responsible for the misery of the Caribbean. And actually, one of their MPs, Preacher Jones, wrote that, that they have a responsibility, but they are not living up to it. So they knew all along that repartory justice was a, a, a right, a responsibility. So the victims are, uh, and the, the descendants of victims and the, and the continuing harm, they're on that side. Those who are the inheritors on the other side. And that is why we see so many universities, um, religious institutions studying their actual role and how they benefited from the transatlantic trafficking in enslaved Africans and in plantation and, and in chattel enslavement. But I think there's another step to be taken. You can't just study, you know, you study and you publish a study and you think you have done good. The lobbying, the, the advocacy must also start. And, and that's, that's what is missing and that we're, we're looking to see the advocacy in these spaces. Yeah, I would say also, you know, the psychology of this is real. There is a moral wound that is mm -hmm. held equally by white and black, right? That's held yes. equally across racial lines and right the wealth and stability of Europe of America versus the instability and mm -hmm. poverty in the global south right these are mm -hmm. these just speak not just an economic reality but also a deep moral wound that people are holding why do we think racist or racism is has such a charge to it right mm -hmm. like it should be calling someone racist is worse than calling them virtually anything and yet in this world, we have been educated over and over into white supremacy. I'm a black woman, and the times I would try to point out racism in college, to uh, there's a, a big study that used to be popular uh, in the 20th century, basically saying black women are responsible for the decline of the black family. It was considered um, gospel when I was in college. And um, the penalties of even saying, even the data doesn't support this claim that black women are the problem was 
quickly slapped down by by academia, right? And so I think what Verena is saying about we need to actually embed the research into the policy is real, but at the same time, we need to acknowledge the moral wound that mm-hmm. enslavement has inflicted across our society mm-hmm. to the point that we can't even acknowledge that we walk with racism as an everyday thing. We are all educated into it. We get benefits for reinforcing it. And it's also tacitly reinforced in our media, in our education, in our, in our intimate lives. And that reality is something we need to confront in order to dismantle the systemic racism. That was human rights lawyer Dominique Day. And my other guest today was social historian Vereen Shepard. Ms. Day is the chairperson of the UN Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent, and Professor Shepard is chairperson of the UN Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Thanks to the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights for helping me to prepare this episode of The Lid Is On as part of the Learn, Speak Up, Act campaign, which is a two-year initiative for concrete global action against racism, discrimination, xenophobia, and related intolerance. Please subscribe to The Lid Is On wherever you get your podcasts and head to news.un.org for a daily diet of UN-related features and news stories.